Well, we started a new series on what is a healthy church. We're currently looking at the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapters 1 through 5. And then, um, then we're going to jump over to the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. That will get us through the summer, and then we will be spending um, the rest of the year in the book of Daniel, which I've never preached through. Um, so I'm excited to get into the Old Testament and preach a, a, a little different book. But um, if you were not here last week when we looked at Acts 3, Acts 3 is this remarkable passage where there's this lame man who was brought to a gate outside the temple to beg for alms. And while Peter and John were passing this gate, uh, on their way to prayer at the temple, the lame man asked them for money. And Peter said to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So the early church, they saw this miracle, and they were astonished. Their amazement leads Peter to begin to preach about Christ, about his deity, about his death and resurrection, and how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus being the fulfillment of this coming Messiah. Peter then exhorts them to repent, to turn back to God. Now, remember, these were religious Jews who were also on their way to the temple to pray. And Peter tells them to repent, to turn to God. At this point in the sermon, it seems like the crowd has, has grown to consist of some who um, aren't astonished, but rather annoyed at what they are hearing. And this is where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4. So let me pray for our time in God's perfect and fallible word this morning. God, we come to you just um, in awe of how you're at work, um, how you've been such a faithful God. Lord, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see you this morning, to hear from you. Lord, open up our hearts to receive this message. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 1 says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So let's, let's pause here for a moment. Let's, let's understand who this cast is here. The captain of the temple, he was not like the, the best athlete. It's not why he was named the captain. He was the right-hand man of the chief priest. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of the day. The Sadducees, they were one of three major Jewish theological and philosophical schools. Uh, Pharisees, the Essenes. The Essenes are probably the least known. Um, they, they are credited for writing the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? That was most likely from the Essenes. They would be the more conservative group. The Sadducees, uh, they didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in a future resurrection from the dead. So you could see why the Sadducees, they were greatly annoyed by, sermons, uh, by Peter's sermon. Um, you know, preaching this resurrected Christ, uh, that's impossible. There is no resurrection. 
Then you also have to remember that Israel is controlled by Rome. So they're also annoyed at this because they're stirring up some things. So Rome allowed Israel to worship their own God as long as they towed the line and didn't cause any trouble. From, a, from the religious leader's perspective, and probably from Rome's perspective, thousands of people are now gathering, showing their loyalty to Jesus would be problematic. The Jews did not want the apostles provoking the Roman authorities to take notice of Israel. They, they just wanted to keep everything quiet, status quo. The setting in chapter 4 further establishes the contrast between these two temples. You, you have, you have um, the physical religious temple, these religious leaders here, showing hostility towards the spiritual temple, the church, the new dwelling place of God. So you see this battle going on, this conflict. Verse 3, they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening, but many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is incredible. Verse 3 is the first time we see someone being in prison for preaching the gospel. At the end of chapter 2, there were about 3,000 saved, and here we see now the number is about to 5,000. This is incredible. The, the, the growth of the early church is truly unparalleled. It's grown from about 120, and we saw in chapter 1, to now 5,000. Some people believe that 5,000 was just this day. The 3,000 was a different, so it could be as many as 8,000. And I love how simple the growth was. It, it, if, if you look at it, it's, all Peter did was just preach a crucified and risen Savior. Peter didn't do any giveaways. Now, I'm not saying if your church, if you're going to a church or somebody's church you know does giveaways. I'm not saying that's wrong. But notice they're not doing any of this stuff. There's no marketing tools here. Um, the first 3,000 to believe didn't receive like a free iPad. Like, hey, if you trust in Christ, free iPad today. He just faithfully preached the gospel. I think this is a good reminder for us. The church does not need some kind of gimmicky program in order for her to grow. We need to be faithful to preach the good news of the gospel. We need to trust that God is at work and leave the results up to him. So let's, let's keep reading. Verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So word had begun to spread among the religious elites. And on the following day, Peter and John, they were brought before those rulers, elders, and scribes, these religious power players in Jerusalem. Even Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, we, we saw those guys, right, when we were going through the Gospel of John. They were there at the trial of Jesus. And then just look how far these two fishermen have come. You have Peter and John. It wasn't that long ago. They were nobodies, but now they're in front of the high priest. And after they set Peter and John before them, the very first question they asked them was, by what power or by what name did you do this? Notice how these religious leaders, they did not gather Peter and John to celebrate what God had done to this lame man. The very first question they asked should have been, um, you know, we, we've heard stories about this lame man that we've heard that he's able to stand and run and leap. 
You, can you tell us more about that? Like, we'd love to hear what God is doing. That wasn't their first question. But instead of actually caring about this man or the miraculous healing, all they wanted to do was protect their power. These men love being really, really important, and any threat to their greatness would not be tolerated. Just look at Jesus and the cross as exhibit A. You know, Jesus, he hadn't done anything wrong. He was sinless. But yet he was a threat to their power. So they got rid of him. These same men could not stand that Jesus' following had become larger than theirs. And their love for power and influence led them to crucify Jesus. So ultimately this shows you the most, that, that most of these religious leaders cared more about their power than they cared about the scriptures. I mean, these were men who had studied, they'd gone to school, studied the Old Testament scriptures, and yet they did not recognize or maybe didn't want to recognize that Jesus was the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. They completely missed it because they were too concerned with keeping the status quo. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure. He was preparing them about the future, what was coming. Listen to what Jesus tells them in Luke 21 while keeping Acts 4 in mind. Listen to this. Jesus says to them, verse 12, But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is what Jesus had told his disciples before he died. And now, this sounds pretty much like what's happening in Acts chapter 4. They will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogue and prisons. Where are they right now? They, they've been arrested. And you will be brought before kings and governors, and you know, these really important people. Why? For my name's sake. And what question did they ask Peter and John? By, by what power or what name did you do this? Jesus was trying to get them to see that suffering, um, to, to view suffering from a different perspective. He tells them that they will be persecuted for his name. But in verse 13, he says, this will be your opportunity. My opportunity. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. I've never looked at suffering as an opportunity. Jesus says, your suffering will be an opportunity. An opportunity for what? To be a witness. And that's what we see unfolding here. Jesus promised in Luke 21 that he will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And as we keep reading in Acts 4, we will see this promise come to fruition. Look down at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means has this man uh, has been healed? This, this is exactly what the religious leaders wanted to, wanted to know. That's what they asked, you know, what, by what name, what are you doing this? We, he tells them. He says, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, 
that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well, standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here, Peter boldly tells them that their plan did not work. The Jesus they thought they had killed and defeated was the same Jesus who healed this lame man. These religious leaders have placed Peter and John on trial, but Peter is now convicting them of the crime. And what does Peter say their crime is? That they have rejected the cornerstone. I believe Peter is purposely using this word cornerstone here as a shot at his audience. They, them, these leaders, knowing their Old Testament very well, they would have known what Peter's doing here. He's quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118, you, I mean, it's right there in front of you in, in Acts 4. It says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter's saying that these religious leaders were the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. Peter calling them, these religious leaders, he's calling them the builders. And Jesus being the cornerstone. Peter's showing them that the religious experts of the day, they were on the wrong side of history. And when we're trying to develop a proper soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation, verse 12 is probably one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, this is it's a very clear verse. This is, the truth found in this verse is what has motivated Christians for centuries to be willing to face persecution and martyrdom. If this verse is true, and if we actually care about the lostness of others, then we have to speak about the only name that saves. The theological term for this would, would be called the exclusivity of Christ. In short, you and I are sinners. We have sinned against a holy, righteous, and just God. But God is also loving, and gracious, and merciful, so he's made a way for the sinner to be reconciled with him. This way is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way, not a way. I mean, this is a claim of, of exclusiveness. It's only through Jesus. Jesus tells us that the way to God is not through some method like being good or moral or generous or kind, but salvation is found through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And this is hard for a postmodern culture. We, we live in a culture that does not understand absolute truth. Truth, by definition, is narrow. But today you have phrases like, well, that might be true for you, but not for me, or you do your truth. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. That is a very exclusive statement. If Jesus is the only way to God, if, if, if he isn't the only way to God, I should say, then why in the world are we doing missions? Why are we doing missions? Why are people risking their lives? Why is the IMB spending millions of dollars per year on missions 
if some people will just find their way to God through some other religion or maybe through understanding creation, that there must be some God who created everything, or through ignorance, or just by being a good person. If Jesus isn't the only way to God, then we need to pull every single missionary off the field this very second. Why are they out there? But if Jesus is the only way to God, then this truth becomes the fuel for missions. We have to go. Christians should be motivated to tell as many people about Jesus because Jesus is their only hope. That's it. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no one, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, I'm not sure how else to understand um, that verse other than thinking that, that Jesus is the only way to God. I mean, it's pretty clear. So if the Bible is true, which I believe it is, then the exclusivity of Christ has to also be true. And if you think about it, to say otherwise, it's pretty disrespectful to Jesus. It's disrespectful because it suggests that Jesus didn't really have to come and die on the cross. It was, you know, it was really kind of him to show us how much he loved us. But he could have just stayed in heaven. He didn't really have to, he didn't really have to go through all that. Scripture plainly reveals that there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And yet he welcomes anyone in the world who would believe in him. So it's only through him, but anyone can come. So Peter blasts these religious leaders, and then he tells them that they all need to be saved. Imagine being at a pastor's conference, and you walk up on stage and you tell all the pastors, hey, all you guys, you need to repent. You need, all need to be saved. That's what's essentially happening here with Peter. So now let's see how they respond to Peter's rebuke. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Remember, they were annoyed earlier. Now they're astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love this verse. The educated saw the uneducated common men, and they were astonished. Why? Because they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That is my prayer for you this week. I, I, I pray that those around you can recognize that you have been with Jesus. Isn't that a cool phrase? You walk into work this week, and there's like, man, there's just something about you. Did you get a haircut? No, that's not it. Did, did you lose some weight? No, that's not it. What is it? Oh, I know. I recognize that you've been with Jesus. There's something different about you this week. See, this is not the same Peter who we saw at the end of John's gospel, is it? This is a man who is now filled with the Holy Spirit. He's different. He's bold. Remember, just, just weeks ago, he was... A little girl asked him, don't you know Jesus? Isn't he your friend? No, I don't know who he is. What are you talking about? And now before all the religious leaders, he's bold. He's different. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I mean, think about that scene. You know, you got Peter and John on trial. 
And then over here, you got just that lame man who's been laying there for years. Now he's just standing there. He's, he's exhibit A, like, hey, everyone. And then they have nothing to say. And, and then we see the meeting after the meeting. Have you ever been to churches or part of groups that have that? The meeting after the meeting, like you have some meeting and there's some important decisions to be made, then you dismiss, you got in the parking lot, and you have this group over here meeting still, and you have these guys meeting. That's what's happening here, the meeting after the meeting. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So, you know, they're kind of reasoning. They're like, what do we do with these guys? It's obvious that this man's, this man's no longer lame. He's been healed. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in, his, in this name. So that was their plan. Well, I got it. Let's just, let's just tell them, hey, guys, we just can't keep doing this. You can't keep talking about Jesus. So they, they called them, verse 18, and Charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This section is just it's very troubling. Here are these educated, brilliant men. They have enough sense to understand what's going on, that a notable sign has been performed through Peter and John, that this sign is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But instead of asking, you know, we see this, obviously God's working Maybe we should ask him, what, what do we need to be? What, what, do, what do we need to do to be saved or, or healed? They ask, how can we keep these guys quiet? This shows you that these leaders are more concerned about keeping their power more than they are about being right with God. They charge Peter and John to never speak about Jesus to anyone ever again. Now, when you... I want you to think about what's going on. This is important for us to understand. They give Peter and John this charge not to speak anymore. Now, those giving the charge, they literally have the power to cancel Peter and John. If these leaders excommunicate you, then no one's going to buy from your trade. Most people aren't even going to trade or sell anything to you. They're going to just... Leave you be, like you're going to be treated as an outsider. You can't come to the temple. You really are an outsider. So let's see how Peter and John respond. Like, there's a lot of pressure. Like, if we don't do what they say, we're going to be canceled. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter's different. Prior to the cross, Peter denied Jesus three times, but now that he's seen the resurrected Christ, he cannot but speak of what he has seen and heard. I love that he cannot but speak. I think if Christ has radically changed your life, then you cannot help but to talk about what he has done for you, that you are compelled to talk. So what, what did the leaders do? Verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them 
because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of, of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So the religious leaders, they, they were faced with this dilemma. If they admitted that Jesus was truly um, the one that healed this man, that, that they, were, um, they would be condemning themselves. So, you know, if Jesus really healed this man and we admit that, then we're condemning ourselves because these were the men who put Jesus to death. On the other hand, if they arrest Peter and John, then these leaders would lose the respect of the people who were praising God for this miracle. So they were kind of like, what do we do? So they just let them go. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, <laughs> what, did they do? what was the first thing they do? They, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal in signs and wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. There is so much going on in this prayer, so much to unpack. First, notice that the very first thing they do after being told not to say anything about Jesus is they go to their other believers and they begin to talk about what Jesus had done. They begin, and, and, and like the very first thing they do together is they have this corporate prayer. They go and they pray. And their prayer wasn't this petition for God to never let them suffer again. Did you notice that? They were just arrested. And, and they go back and they don't like, Lord, please, you know, just keep us from ever doing that again. Their, their prayer begins by praising a sovereign God. He's the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. They ascribe glory and honor to God as the creator of the universe. They recognize God's sovereign rule, and they worshiped him. In this prayer, they modeled for us a few things. First, that when we pray to God, we, we pray to the one who is in complete control of everything. He is sovereign. That's what sovereign means. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God truly has the whole world in his hand. He has the power to change hearts, to impact situations, circumstances. And because of his sovereignty, our prayers have effectiveness. That's why we pray. We pray to a God who can change and work. Next, their prayer models for us the importance to, for us to pray scripture. But sadly, this has become a lost art. Disciples pray Psalm 2. 
Psalm 2 speaks about how the nations would rage against the Messiah and how God would ultimately overcome the rebellion. These Christians were witnessing this firsthand. They they see that God is overcoming uh, these religious leaders. Psalm 2 reminded the early church and Christians today that we can take comfort that God has put all persecution under his sovereign control. So all the persecutions going on in the world today, it's underneath God's rule and reign. And so they pray Psalm 2. I think praying Scripture is so important and beautiful and helpful for us. Um, I want to encourage you this week to pray Psalm 23. Most of you know Psalm 23. It's, it's a very easy passage to pray. So I want you this week, just make a note, send a note on your phone, like a reminder. Pray Psalm 23. Start by reading just verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So then, as, as you just read that, just begin to pray all of the truth that come to your mind. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So think about those, those words. You know, what comes to your mind? Maybe things like, Lord, thank you for being my shepherd. He's, he's my shepherd. That's, that's pretty cool. That God is my, my, my shepherd. Lord, help me not to want today. Help me to be content. All the things you've given, given me, help me to be content with those. Not, not that I'm lusting after other things. Lord, thank you for shepherding me, for, for caring for me, that you watch over me. And then after you exhaust everything that comes to your mind from verse 1, then, then you go to verse 2. And you just pray verse 2. Then when you're done with those six verses, you're just done. I'm telling you, it will radically change your prayer life. You will notice that your prayers stop being so focused on you and give me, give me, give me. And your focus will be more on, God, you're amazing. You are so wonderful and mighty. So I just encourage you, make this a practice in your life. You just start praying scripture. And then notice in their prayer, they don't ask for suffering to be removed. They acknowledge in verse 27 that the suffering that Jesus faced was actually a part of God's sovereign plan. That Jesus' trial and death didn't just happen by accident. Jesus' crucifixion was was not the outcome of some random historical chance. And then in verse 29, their own suffering, they they pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They don't ask that God remove their suffering. They ask that God would give them boldness during their suffering, that they would endure the suffering. We live in a world where we have brothers and sisters living overseas who are being killed for their faith in Jesus. And yet we are so often concerned with trivial things and we become paralyzed by fear at the thought of sharing gospel with people here in our own backyard. Isn't that crazy? Like like sometimes I just hate myself, you know? I just think about what people are risking around the world right now. And then there'll be moments when I'm, you know, I'm maybe 
grabbing lunch with someone who I've been praying for. And I just have this fear come in, like, ah, but you know, what are they going to think of me? But yet we have people overseas that are they're in prison right now. Because they, they were bold to speak about Jesus. They could not help but talk about Jesus. And here I am, I'm like, ah, what are they, you know, what if this messes, what if this makes our relationship kind of awkward? <laughs> what does that matter? Eternity is at stake. In the midst of suffering, they were more concerned that God would give them a boldness to speak the gospel more than they were concerned about their well-being. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I mean, this is the exact opposite of what the Pharisees wanted to see happen. Anytime you see the ground shaking in the Bible, it, it, it shows that the presence of God is at hand. Like God is there. He's present. I think of like Isaiah 6. The ground is shaking. God is with Isaiah, commissioning him to go. Verse 32. And now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I mean, this is just incredible. This is why I want us to see, well, as we're studying what is a healthy church, I want us to see Acts 1 through 5. Like, you see this? And um, here in Acts 4, we, we see that this congregation was marked by its unity. I, I, I think they represent, there's this picture here of what a healthy church should look like. Where we see no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. I mean, this shows us they just had a complete rejection of materialism. They just weren't consumed with it. They had this kingdom perspective, not a worldly, temporary perspective. They recognized the infinite value that they had found in the gospel of Christ. And so they loved one another by freely sharing their worldly possessions with each other. It's not mine, it's yours. I don't need I'm, We're all dying anyways, right? Why do we care? Just take it. I wish we thought more like that. Same is true. We're all dying, right? Whether it's through persecution or just because we die. It's what we do. Why do we care so much about materials, possessions? I love how they understood that their materials would just fade away, but that their joy in Christ would last forever. And when you have that kind of mindset, then it's so much easier to just let go of your things. You know what? I really don't need that. You can take it. 
this church really understood what it meant to be family, to be communal. But Western culture, the Western mindset relentlessly promotes and prioritizes the individual. And you can see this bleeding over into church. We often make church about ourselves, don't we? We sometimes leave thinking or saying things like, you know, I'm, I really didn't get anything out of the service today. So, it's not about you. A phrase like, I didn't get anything out, is, is, you know, it's centered on you. You're at the center. But this morning isn't primarily about you. It's about God, making much of him. The better question is, did you give anything to the service today? That's what we should be coming in. That's how we should be coming in thinking. You should not come to this gathering just so you can get something this morning, but to give something. Man, how much fun would that be if we all, if we all start over this morning and we had in our minds, let's just, let's just gather Sunday morning and let's just see what we can give. You know, it, it could be you give someone your ear rather than your complaints. Maybe you give your time by listening to someone else's you know, complaints, their hardships, their sufferings. Maybe you give encouragement to someone who looks, maybe they look kind of down. How about this one? Maybe you could give up a good parking spot so that, so that a guest could actually have a good first impression of our church. I'm not going to have... I've been to churches where, you know, it's your first time, and they'll say, any first-time visitors, please stand up. I'm like, ah, oh, okay, stand up. I'm not going to have the first-time guests stand up, but as I look around, there's some faces. I think maybe your first-time guests here. Um, you know, what was your first thought when you pulled in and you couldn't find a spot? Could be two ways to look at it. One, you could be like, wow, this, maybe there's something exciting going on here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look all over, you know, around and try to find a spot. Or maybe, maybe you thought, man, this is... Very challenging. I don't know if it's some place I want to be. Maybe you're not here this morning because maybe you left and then, you know, they're not even in here. They circled around and forget that. Go to some other church. There's parking. May we be a church who's looking to give rather than looking to get. That's a sign of a healthy church. Christianity is more like a team sport, which I love team sports. They're hard because you need each other, right? Uh, sometimes you lose in a team sport, and you played really well. Um, but Christianity is more like a team sport more than it is an individual sport. Uh, my wife, she loves tennis. She played tennis at Marshall. And she loved, like, you know, she lost. It was on her. She knew it was, well, it was my fault I didn't play well today. Too many unforced errors. But Christianity is not, it's not an individual sport. It's a team sport. We need each other. It's better when we're together. God wants us to cling to him, to gather in unity with each other so that we build up one another in the grace of the gospel. We don't tear each other down. Building up each other, that's a beautiful picture of, of a healthy church. So as the band comes back up to lead us, as we get ready to transition from corporate worship, this corporate gathering, we're, 
The pews are all facing this way, the chairs are all facing the same direction. As we transition to more of a time of fellowship where you're facing each other, you're not facing up here. Maybe you wander downstairs, you grab some snacks, you hang out for a bit. Let's be thinking about what you can give to others rather than what you can get from others. Let's pray together. God, I I pray that because you have given us so much in Christ, that, that that thinking of what can we get would already be satisfied and full. That as we sang earlier, that Christ is enough. That we don't need anything more from you. So Lord, may we be people who give. May we empty ourselves out for others. May we stop being so so self-focused and individualistic. That we would pour out ourselves for others. That we would give our ear. That we would be good listeners. That we would build up other people. We'd encourage them to keep fighting the good fight. So Lord, help us to be good at giving ourselves to others. Train us, Lord. Have your Holy Spirit remind us when, when all we are consumed with is ourselves. May that never be. May we be people who, who are concerned about others. That we feel we have been well supplied. That you have given us everything we need so, so that we can pour out ourselves to others. May all the, the treasures that you've given us, the materials, may, may we have loose hands. That we don't have strong grips upon those things. That we would be willing to share with others, to give with others. May all this be for your glory, that we would be different, that people this week would recognize that we have been with you. We pray this in Christ's name.